Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. I'm very pleased today to introduce KJ Erickson. KJ is founder and CEO of Simbi, an innovative technology platform that allows users around the world to exchange or barter services. Users can do exchanges directly or in exchange for credits that can be spent in the Simbi network. Prior to Simbi, KJ spent nine years as the founder and executive director of Forge, a nonprofit that provides education, skills, and training and entrepreneurial resources to more than 70,000 refugees in war torn Africa. She's won many awards for her work, including the Skull Scholarship for Social Entrepreneurship, the Do Something Award for Public Service, and the Stanford Haas Public Service Fellowship. PopTech has been catalyzing social impact for two decades via its renowned fellows program, incubated initiatives, thought-provoking salons and conferences. The PopTech 2017 conference takes place October 19th to 21st, you can book tickets now and find out more information at poptech.org. So welcome to the podcast, KJ. I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about the work that you're doing, your experience as a social entrepreneur and your aspirations and plans for Simbi over the coming years. Thank you. Great to be here. So can you tell me a little bit about Simbi, what, what it's about? Of course, yeah. So Simbi is a it's a network to exchange services uh, without the need for anyone involved to have the dollars to afford um, what they're getting through our platform. Uh, we have eighty five thousand different services available. Uh, you can get anything from a ballroom dancing lesson to an SEO consultation to a logo designed for your business. Uh, and you do that by offering your talent uh, or service into the network. You can trade directly with people or you can uh, you can offer your service in exchange for credits that then you can spend on any of those 85,000 other services. Right, right. And, and, and why did you set this up? I mean, what's the, the problem, the underlying issue that this Simbi is looking to you know, help with? Yeah, so I mean, we are living in a time where the economy is changing rapidly and the nature of work is changing uh, as jobs are increasingly automated, as there's more corporate wage pressure and people are really struggling to get by. Uh, they might be able to pay for rent and groceries, uh, but they often then have very little left over to invest in themselves, in their children, in their health. Um, in learning, in the things that make life feel abundant. Um, but they often have time and skills and uh, a willingness and a desire to help other people. And so we're just, we're really creating a parallel economic structure in which, uh, which people can take advantage of that which they do have to offer uh, and in return receive uh, some of these things that make life a little bit more worth living. Right, right. So great, great vision. And how long have you been doing this and how many people are in, in, engaged and involved now with Simbi or use the, the platform? Yeah, um, so I've been at it for over two years and the platform has been live to the public since January of uh, 2016. Uh, so we're getting a little bit of a history under our belt now. There's, um, you know, uh, well over 100,000 people using it. Um, around the world, although we're, we're mostly in America and increasingly Canada. 
but it's really borderless. You know, as long as you can speak English, uh, you can, you know, you can interact with and exchange value with people all over the planet. Right, right. Now, you, what's your background? Because you, you, you've already been a, worked as a social entrepreneur, as an you know, engaged social activist, I guess. Um, can you t talk a little bit about that, uh, maybe, and how, you know, uh, about Forge and, uh, and, and the journey you've been on? Absolutely. Yeah. So I started as a social entrepreneur, although the term wasn't really around at that point. It was kind of just coming out. Um, when I was 20, I was a, a sophomore at Stanford and had spent some time in a refugee camp in Botswana. Uh, and it was while I was there that I saw the ways in which the, the UN system was really poorly equipped um, to handle the you know, unfortunate reality that refugees spend on average nine years living in camps. And the UN really only has the money to pay for um, the humanitarian services, like getting them a roof over their heads uh, or a tent over their heads and you know, some food. And um, I just saw this huge opportunity uh, to work in refugee camps providing basically the human and economic development services that the UN couldn't afford to provide. Uh, so I ended up starting an NGO, an organization called Forge. Uh, we built libraries, computer training centers, did microfinance and agricultural finance programs. Uh, we built schools uh, and much more, uh, basically trying to fill this gap so that while uh, refugees were in limbo in this time in their lives, um, that they were still receiving a type of human development that would allow them to return to their home countries and be contributing citizens. Um, so obviously I was very young when I started it. It was my first real job. Uh, by the time I was 22, I had 200 employees and we were serving 70,000 refugees a year and highly operational, but also, you know, relatively dangerous, um, environments made a ton of mistakes along the way. Um, but was extremely inspired by how much could be accomplished, um, especially for, you know, for underserved populations, and. Um, and that was, yeah, I ran it for 10 years. That was the, my start of, of my journey as a social entrepreneur, decided that I probably didn't want to do things that were dependent on philanthropic fundraising um, in the future. Uh, moved on. After a while, I took a, I took a break and started a yoga studio up in Northern California, where I'm from, uh, just as a time to recover. And it was while I was running this yoga studio, uh, not making very much money at all, uh, but I stumbled my way into this underground local barter economy where um, other people who were, you know, struggling to make ends meet would walk through the door of the studio and say, like, look, you know, I really can't can't afford the hundred bucks a month for a yoga membership. But, you know, I could be I'm a chiropractor. Could I, like, give you an adjustment in exchange for a membership? Um, or could I work behind the front desk a couple of, you know, days a week um, in exchange for being able to take classes? And I started saying yes to those things and soon enough was making more money uh, or more value um, through these trades than I was um, clearing in profit on the studio. And so it all kind of connected back to my early experience with Forge in which, uh, you know, working in the in these refugee camps that really are some of the worst economic environments uh, on the planet, uh, but seeing the ways in which in when there's a lack of any kind of a government social safety net, um, communities can band together and provide that for each other, right? And so if you're if you're a refugee and you're struggling, like you don't have the money to send 
uh, or to, you know, to pay for a visit to essentially to the emergency room, um, your neighbors will give that to you and maybe you'll do something for them in return. Um, and so the idea to me was like, oh, well, maybe we can bring uh, the power of the internet to these ways that humans have, you know, for throughout history supported each other um, through the trading and transacting of value outside of a traditional functioning monetary economy. And so that was the early days for Cindy. Right, it's a great vision, great vision. And um, so, you know, uh, I guess we've had barter economies before, haven't we? And um, we've moved to uh, economy with money. And of course, it's got all kinds of challenges. Um, but I guess it also allows you there's a fungibility and people can uh, you know, buy things where there might not be a coincidence of, of, of wants or where, where people have, uh, you know, at the same time, the same needs for uh, each other's services. So I'm just wondering, uh, to what extent is that an issue? To what extent um, do you see this on your, on, on your platform? How, how would you measure something like that? Is that an important question? I think I misunderstood the question. <laughs> yes, maybe you did. What, yes. Yeah. No, I, I guess exactly? I guess the question is, you know, uh, if I want to go to the dentist and let's say I am a plumber, I may not find uh, an exchange. So that exactly. may not be possible. Um, so to, to what kinds of uh, transactions or what kinds of uh, scenarios are most open to barter, do yeah. you think? Yeah, so that's actually um, one of the most common misconceptions about Symbi is that you have to have um, a direct exchange where, you know, person A gives person B a service and person B gives person A a service. What actually happens on Symbi for the majority um, of the deals that get done is that we use our own internal credit system or currency to facilitate the transactions. So person A gives person B uh, 10 Simbi in exchange for a service. Uh, and then person B uses that to get what they might want. So it's its own internal economy. Uh, and of course, you can do a direct barter or direct trade. But the fact that we have this platform and this network um, allows for there to be exponentially more possible um, transactions occurring um, than would be possible if you had to have a, a perfect direct barter. Right, direct barter. That's the word I was the phrase I was looking for. Yeah. And and what percentage then? And that's the the uh, th that would be a small percentage of the overall number of transactions that the, the direct barter. Correct. Correct. It's uh, less than twenty percent. Right. 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 And 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 tell me about setting the organization up, and you know how how that was. You 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 mentioned you you worked as an NGO in it before. Um, this is a slightly different world, I guess. Uh, social entrepreneurship and the, the, the you. What's your funding model? And um, yeah, that would be a good place to start. Yeah. So I mean, we're much more of a social enterprise. Uh, it's been funded mostly by angel investors and. You know, when you're starting uh, something that's kind of audacious, like this idea, uh, you have to start small and you have to prove yourself out as you go. Uh, and so I started just by, by raising a little bit of money from mostly friends and family, people that I'd worked with before and that believed in me, and to build an original prototype uh, and then turn that into a little alpha test where, you know, got 100 people on the platform and... and was able to prove out 
the ways in which all this new economic value was being created. Uh, and then from there, started raising a little bit more money and it kind of expanding the pool uh, as we had these learnings and, and this traction under our belt. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been investor funded. Right. And, and how do you make money? Uh, we don't right now. Um, you know, there's lots of possible directions for how that might be possible in the future. But, you know, this is this is really one of those enterprises in which you focus on building the network and building uh, the amount of value that is transacting through the platform. First and foremost, I think because it is a network effect business, because every additional person that we get um, involved in the service makes the service more valuable for everyone else. Um, you know, we're just trying to make sure that we don't do anything to get in the way um, of that kind of growth and value creation by, you know, by charging for it, etc. Um, and that once we get to the, the kind of size and scale um, that we, you know, very much believe we will get to, that there are that there are business models, um, obvious business models that you build on top of it. Right. What kind of things are you thinking of? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the core ones, right, is that, you know, Symbi is used for skill sharing and learning um, as much as anything. And uh, that is incredibly valuable to various groups and then often to businesses or corporations. Um, so we're going to be coming out soon with a groups um, feature that will allow people uh, to, to create a version of Symbi. Um, for whether it's their local neighborhood association, uh, maybe their university, et cetera. Uh, but then there's also a strong use case for, for companies uh, that want to encourage um, scaring, sharing of skills and on-the-job training, et cetera, um, and that we believe will be excited to, uh, to pay for that as a form of employee development. Right, right. And, 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 and you mentioned you've got professional investors involved. How do they? Uh, how did that go? Uh, you know, the, the idea that um, you know you, you you'll have a business model later when you reach a certain scale and things, because um, it's uh, yeah, it's I think it's challenging a, to, to, to. I think it's a very um, unique. You have to have the right business to be able to do that, right? Uh, and it almost inherently um, should be a network effect business. Um, and it has to be one in which the, the potential is, um, is extremely large, right? Um, so I don't, I don't believe that it's like a direction that uh, any business model can, can go in, uh, but it's one that, that worked for us. Right, right. It sounds like you have a great vision for the future. I mean, what, how, how big can this be? How big do you think Simbi can be? Right. Um, I mean, philosophically, right, it can, be, <laughs> it can be as big as the economy, right? As I said, um, you know, the value of the network or the value of, say, of our credits um, is inherently as valuable as um, how widely you can spend them uh, and to what level of um, quality and trust and the reliability um, of our ratings uh, so for each additional data point we get on a person who's part of the network, their quality, their reliability, and then of course for each additional service um, that's brought on, um, the whole network gets more valuable. So it, you know, that, that, there's not a um, built-in philosophical limit to the expansion potential.
Yes, yes. I, I guess when you're thinking of the underlying issue, um, and you, you mentioned, you know, some people that they, they've got the time, but they don't have the resources and so forth. Presumably, that's, uh, I mean, not a not a not the dominant part of the economy. Um, and to what extent, um, to what extent are, are there, do you find the, the, the kind of skills that are, are, are coming onto the platform um, represent, you know, skills which are less tradable or less, you know, more, more challenging to, you know, for example, if you are, a, you know, a corporate lawyer, you, you know, there's going to be no shortage of people looking for your, you know, willing to pay for your skills, presumably, or you're a surgeon <laughs> and so forth. But then there are whole other areas, presumably, where um, part of the challenge is that the people who are looking for the what you've got are very widely distributed. So it's not that there's not necessarily a demand, but it may exactly. be very fragmented. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, so I'd say we do both. We do services that are, um, you know, very commonly traded in the traditional economy, whether those are blue collar, you know, plumbing and mechanics, etc. Uh, but then we also, and probably even specialize in these services for which there's a lack of liquidity in the traditional economy, either because uh, the, it is hard to build a marketable business around it, the barriers to entry are high, et cetera. Um, you know, uh, I'm looking online right now and I see uh, people who will plan your next road trip, you know, for five simbi, uh, they'll do that. Or they'll give you an ecology and ecosystems tutor. That's just under my experiences section. We have all kinds of um, services that fall into the healing arts um, that often are, there's a lack of um, liquidity in those markets. Or other kinds of learning, whether that's like a ukulele class um, or practicing a, a new language, etc. Um, some of these things are hard to build fully marketed, fully built out businesses around. Uh, but the, you know, you still have a lot of talent in that area are very valuable to other people. Um, and, you know, for a couple hours a week in order to, to get something that you would really enjoy in return, make a lot of sense. Yes, absolutely. And to what extent, how much is local and how much would you say is national or international? In the sense that if somebody in California doing a transaction with someone locally or somebody or doing one in New York, do you have any kind of sense of the, the, those? Yeah, statistics? yeah. So we have, you know, we have a lot of virtually completed uh, deals. Um, you know, at least half of the services available on Simbi can be performed virtually, whether that's over Skype or the phone, um, or often through our messaging system. Uh, you know, we see a lot of graphic design, we see a lot of business um, consulting, we see a lot of kind of life coaching related services. Uh, we also have an Etsy-like marketplace where art gets shipped in the mail. Um, so it, having a lot of local density is very much not a uh, barrier to accessing Simbi because the majority of, of deals done currently um, are done with people that aren't in your local area. Uh, but we also have a local chapter program um, where people can start a uh, basically a Simbi local chapter, um, start having local swap meets, etc., where they're really building this alternative economy um, in their hometowns. Right, right. And how does the pricing work? Because 
I guess in, in, in many areas, you know, you can get, you can pay different prices for things. You can have a pretty cheap lawyer or you can have a top end lawyer. Um, is there a, how, how does the pricing work uh, on Simbi? And, and yeah. to what extent can you measure, you know, people might be, you know, not, not having a right, the right price. So they might have a really good service, but they might be overpricing and. Exactly. And, and, and yeah. The, I mean, the market, yeah. the market determines uh, the market clearing price, right? Um, so we don't tell people what to price their, their services. It's entirely floating. And um, we, we find, uh, you know, that if you overprice, you know, you won't necessarily get perfect feedback to know whether it's the, your service isn't desirable, whether, you know, nobody's on here or whether you just priced it too high. Uh, so people often come in and, you know, try to try to figure that out. Um, but it is a it's a proper economy and there's, you know, there's an invisible hand um, that determines these things. Right. Yes. Yes. And I, I guess quality matters as well. I mean, if you're if somebody's charging more, uh, like you got exactly. yeah. Uh, you 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 want to have, feel confident that they are going to deliver a better service. How does that side of things work? Uh, yeah. So I mean, we've we put a bunch of energy into our ratings and review system, and um, so every transaction uh, has a rating and a review associated with it. Uh, people get get rated on three different qualities. Uh, the actual quality of the service, the reliability of that person in delivering it and in their communication, um, and also their friendliness because, you know, the kindness and the experience of um, interacting with someone on Simbi is a really core part of, of what we're building. And we believe that's a core part of the value that anyone gets out of um, any kind of, of interaction or transaction. So we provide an ability to rate on all of those metrics. Great, great, very interesting. So can you tell me about some of the challenges organizationally building up, building up Simbi? Yeah. Um, what would you well, say are some of the biggest challenges? I'm sure you could talk for a long time about all the challenges. Are there one or two things that you'd highlight that were really uh, significant challenges? Yeah, so I mean, what I would say is that um, the biggest challenge that I faced was that this is a very unproven, um, obviously, business model, uh, but but also idea and concept, right? And so when I first started talking to people about it, they'd be like, wow, that sounds really cool um, and also impossible, right? <laughs> um, or some people who are a little bit more familiar would say like, oh, I feel like there was a lot of people who've tried this and it's always failed. And then I'd push back on them and be like, um, who has tried it? Show me one good high quality attempt. And I'll be like, oh, I, well, I think there was something in the 90s. And I'm like, so do you think that now is like the 90s, <laughs> right? Like yeah. how much has changed? Um, could we be ready for this again? Um, and so there was a degree to which, you know, one of the early challenges was just, getting people to believe that it was possible. And the way that I approached that was to not get very attached to whether um, most people believe that it was possible, um, to focus on the steps that I could take to, uh, to prove out, as I said, like each small step of the way, um, that what I had seen, you know, both in the refugee camps and then particularly in running this yoga studio and seeing this underground uh, activity, 
um, was, was real and showing the ways that you can prove your thesis. Um, just, you know, starting with that like very first rung on the ladder and then building up from there. Uh, but I think it would be, it's very easy to get discouraged. Um, if you don't jump into like what is controllable for me right now, um, rather than getting like into kind of debating the merits of an idea back and forth over, over and over again. You're right. So trying to get an understanding of what kind of evidence that would, would satisfy them. The people exactly. You're talking to, what, what, what would show to them that they, you know, that this was viable and this would work and so forth. Yes. Yeah. Cause you don't really need, I mean, for me, it's just been like, I don't really need anyone to, uh, it's not that I don't need anyone to believe, but the number of people that I need to believe is very, very small, right? At first it's like, I need, um, I need somebody else who's willing to build this with me to believe to a certain extent, right? That it may be possible. I don't even need to, them to believe, like, I know that this is possible, just that it may be and it's worth trying. Um, yes. And then I need a few people to, that are willing to provide funding, um, not even necessarily them fully believing, but also believing that if it is possible, if, you know, if she can crack this, um, then it's amazing, right? <laughs> then it's worth it. Uh, yes. So I think just uh, getting, figuring out how you're going to strategically get over those humps to um, prove out your idea and like ever expanding concentric circles. Yes, uh, yes. Was there ever a, a worry in your mind that, you know, you might get this to the scale where it works at a yoga studio or, you know, three yoga studios size thing, but actually it's never going to get beyond a certain size. And it sounds from what you're saying that size and scale is a very important element in what you're doing. What, you know, what puts your mind at rest that you are going to get this to, uh, you know, the potential to get this to a really big scale? Yeah, I mean, so I think that that one actually um, does go to economic theory for me. Uh, because the reason why I think I'm so attracted to building this company in the first place is the fact that it it does um, it gets more viable every day, and so my fear uh, I don't have a ton of fear that the market is um, too small uh, because I believe that it becomes even though it might not appeal to the most mainstream right now um, if we do it right it will become, it can become increasingly mainstream over time as people can understand um, the value uh, that's being provided by something that might be like more alternative and more niche at the beginning. Yeah. So yeah, that part doesn't keep me up at night. <laughs> and what about support along the way? How important has that been? I mean, you talked about your, 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 your very uh, rational step-by-step -step approach to you know, testing the idea and so forth. It is a, um, and, and you'll know this more than many, you know, having spent that time working in the refugee camps and so forth, it, being a social entrepreneur or, you know, working in these environments is relentless. And, you know, you are, you know, get up tomorrow and it's another day and you've got to keep, you know, uh, going in quite challenging circumstances. Uh, so what yeah. kind of support have you had and what's would you recommend to others to get the kind of support that's necessary to, to, you know, to try new things and build projects that are different? Yeah. Um, really important question. Um, I mean, for me, it's been having a great team around me and we've, you know, now been a few years, um, we've added people to the team, which has been fantastic. Um, but we've had a core team building this, um, Nick and Carlos and Archam, 
uh, now for a couple of years. And, you know, I think that like just knowing that you are kind of going to battle every day with, with the same people uh, is super important. Uh, but also, you know, I've been a founder, CEO, um, entrepreneur for my entire career. And so I think that um, one, the only way to do that and, you know, to still be breathing um, is to learn how to manage your own psychology. And so um, being able to kind of step back from those day-to-day kind of challenges or crises uh, and know how to keep yourself centered, keep yourself energized um, is, I think, like the master skill of being an entrepreneur. A bit of yoga probably helps. <laughs> yeah, um, yoga totally helps. Meditation helps. Um, you know, eating well and getting a little exercise or sun or whatever it might be really helps. Um, and encouraging that for your team uh, and for, for them to be taking care of themselves. Uh, that's something I definitely did not appreciate in uh, the early days of foundership where I just like drove myself in the ground and then had to, you know, go be a, a yoga studio owner for a year just to recover. Yes. Uh, and so this time around, it's much more about like we're, you know, we're running a marathon here. Yes. Um, you're yes. not going to like build a new economy from scratch um, overnight. Right. Yes. Like these are, yes. these are, this is a, this is going to be a long um, sojourn. Yes. Now, you talked about the, the funding side of things. Now, presumably working in an NGO and you, you, you weren't looking for certainly equity investment and looking for angel investors and so forth. So you must have had to learn a lot to deal with this environment. Just wondering whether one or two uh, insights into, you know, what what, uh, you know, tips, uh, what, what to do and what you've learned about fundraising. Oh, about fundraising. Um... Good question. So, I mean, I would say that the, um, probably the most important insight into raising um, any kind of venture-related capital is that the possibilities for, you know, really large returns is what matters most, right? My, my Cindy is not a, a business where anyone looks at it and they're like, oh, okay, there's like a really high probability that you're going to get to profitability, Right. <laughs> Um, it's, you, you more look at it and say, okay, uh, very risky, <laughs> but if you do get it to work, um, this could be something that's hugely massive and transformative. Um, and so that actually aligns really well with, um, venture related funding. Um, and I think that that's like kind of the first place where, where entrepreneurs need to start is, is recognizing that they need to make a case. Um, for how their business becomes massive if they're going to go for venture capital. Now, the great thing is that there's so many other forms of capital these days, right? There's equity crowdfunding that has uh, much lower um, sort of requirements for, for what the, the possible modeled return might be, uh, where you can really raise money from your community itself. And we're, we're looking at... Um, at seeing if we can enable that to to allow our members to also become owners in the platform, um, right? But you know, you got to understand the incentives of uh, of the of the people that you know that you're asking to place their capital with you. Right? Is that something you're planning? Because I know I spoke to Doug Rushkoff for 
uh, about um, you know, he's he's the author of throwing stones at the Google bus. But there is this question that a lot of these platforms that um, the people who benefit are the funders uh, yeah. to the exclusion of uh, the people who are actually part of the platform who are contributing the value to the platform. And this is yeah. a, a big issue. So have you concrete aspirations to 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 include uh, users in some way in, uh, as a beneficiary? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm very actively um, investigating how we might be able to do some uh, some equity crowdfunding and turn our our users into our owners. Great, great. So, what are your aspirations for the future? Then, the next three to five years. Oh, good question. Um, I mean, we're just we're just trying to continue to build this thing. The great thing about Simbi is that. It's not about taking share of wallet away from like any other platform, right? Like things that get uh, quote unquote bought on Simbi are very rarely things that would have been bought in the regular dollar-based economy. So anything that runs through our network um, is literally new value created and we're shifting the demand curve to the right in the whole economy. Um, and so I just want to keep doing that, right? It's just keep growing. Uh, the value that we're providing to people and um, increasing the size of the network um, and expanding what is what is possible um, through our site. Great. And have you plans internationally? You mentioned you have got international uh, business. Yeah, we got already. a lot of international yeah. users. Um, and then the most exciting thing that we are doing is creating this uh, this new groups model where you can essentially create a, a Simbi for your particular purposes, for your local neighborhood, um, you know, group of friends, company, school, etc. cetera. Uh, and we want to, we want to let people who are already have some form of connection or affinity to each other, um, be able to share their skills and resources, um, in a much more direct way. So that's, that's kind of the, the next rollout. Brilliant. Right. Thank you so much, KJ. That's been fantastic. I wish you the very best of success with your with future growth. It's a great vision. And thank you so much for sharing your experience and insights and hard won lessons with inspiring social entrepreneurs. Awesome. Really delighted to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts. SSIR has been serving global leaders of social change for almost 15 years via its quarterly magazine, online articles, podcasts, videos, webinars and conferences. At its heart is a vision that collaboration between non-profit, business and government sectors is key to solving growing environmental, social and economic justice issues. Find out more at ssir.org.